Friends, another warm welcome, especially to the guests among us. Welcome to this time of worship here on this uh, Transfiguration Sunday. The gospel lesson comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 17th chapter. Let's listen again for a word from God to us. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them to the top of a very high mountain. There he was transformed in front of them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking to Jesus. Peter reacted to all this by saying, Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you want, I'll make shrines for us. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking, look, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I dearly love. I'm very pleased with him. Listen to him. Hearing this, the disciples fell on their faces, filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anybody about the vision until the human one is raised from the dead. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is there to say about the transfiguration? I, I ask that not in the way that preachers will often ask a question to get our minds thinking. I really am curious what there is to say about this story. Because in the past nine years of my ordained ministry, it seems like every year on this particular Sunday, the seventh Sunday after Epiphany, Transfiguration Sunday, the preacher conveniently schedules a vacation. <laughs> and if, for some reason, that preacher, let's say, forgot to schedule vacation on this Sunday and also happens to have more than one pastor on staff, there is an eagerness to stand in the hallway and compete in a game of rock, paper, scissors, best two out of three, of course, just for the 50-50 chance of not having to preach on this particular Sunday. Because the honest truth is, we don't know what to do with Jesus standing atop the magical mountain as the dead prophets of old show up to greet him. Even amongst some of the most learned scholars, there's some angst here. Dorothy Lee, who's written an entire book on just these nine verses, calls this one of the most neglected stories in the New Testament. Lutheran priest Nadia Boltz Weber confesses, it's not the best form to say not nice things about the Bible, but if you made me choose one story from the Gospels that I find the least helpful, it would be this one. And then there's Gregory Van Dussen, who writes, This story comes across as weird, exotic, and remote. We read it, and we wonder, we shrug our shoulders, 
and we move on unsure of its relevance for our faith and life. And I think we move on with good reason. Because here on the mountaintop, the pattern gets changed on us. Over the past 16 chapters in Matthew's version of the story, Jesus has been teaching and preaching. He's been carrying on and on about this kingdom of God business, giving us instructions on how to be salt and light, how to pray, how to love our neighbors as ourselves, blessing those who show mercy, who are meek, who make peace, laying out the tasks and the to-dos of discipleship. But then suddenly, on top of this mountain, Jesus falls oddly silent. His face begins to radiate like the sun. His clothes strobe with dazzling light. Moses and Elijah appear out of the mountain he missed, and God's voice booms from above. It's this magical, mystical, ethereal moment where all sense of time and space disappear. Where the lid between this world and the next is torn away. Where every mystery of the cosmos is made known. All things seen and unseen are revealed. Choirs of angels shout hallelujah. The gates of heaven are flung open. A magical, mystical, ethereal moment where Jesus' divinity is on full display. And there's Peter with his hand in the air. Yeah, Jesus, Lord, sorry to interrupt. Listen, it's good for us to be here. You know, I brought some tents with me. I'm happy to set them up. There's one for you, and there's one for Moses, and there's one for Elijah. I imagine it's an interruption that comes with a chorus chorus of eye rolls from the choir of angels collective groan from the dead prophets of old and an exasperated sigh from the entire universe. But then again, what do we expect from Peter? Yes, Peter's disruption is both ill-timed and it's definitely awkward. But it does make sense, doesn't it? Because from the moment that Jesus lured him away from his fishing boat to the top of this mountain, all Peter knows is that to be a disciple means to be active, to do something, to be salt and light, to pray, to love, to show mercy, to be meek, to make peace. And so now in this overwhelming moment of wonder, all Peter can think to do is is to do something, to make shrines, as the text tells us. Scholars will say that this is him memorializing what he has witnessed, or a way to linger just for a little bit longer. Or it could be an attempt to honor these divine guests who show up out of the mountain he missed. David Luce suggests something far more innate, though, something more reactionary, saying that when encountered by something so wonderful, our first inclination is to do something, to do anything, that in fact, Peter reacts like many of us. 
and how true that is. I mean, think, how many low-quality weather balloon pictures have you seen in the past few weeks? <laughs> but this desire to react, to do something, to capture the moment, it comes at a cost. A recent episode of NPR's Morning Edition highlighted this cost and the growing tension between musical artists and their fans. Performers looking out over a packed arena of people, all of whom are staring into their phones recording what's happening on stage. When interviewed about the issue, Wesley Schultz of the Lumineers said, Listen, we just want people to be present. Other artists have taken a more direct approach. At a show in Atlanta, Beyonce told fans, Y'all got to put the phone down for a second and actually enjoy this moment. Adele stopped one of her hit songs to ask, Can you stop filming me with your camera? Because I'm, I'm really here, in real life. You can enjoy this in real life. There are some things in this world that are just too beautiful to record. There are some things in this world that are just too beautiful to overthink. And we do this with the transfiguration year after year after year. It's why us preachers come to this particular Sunday, the seventh Sunday after Epiphany, Transfiguration Sunday, and we ask the question, what is there to say? Because for the bulk of our ministry, we have been trained in what to do. How to read the text. How to interpret the language where to look for answers, and finally, what to say. And as disciples of Jesus, we've been trained to do much the same. To read the text, to interpret it for our life, to look for answers, and finally, to put those answers into action. We are excellent at that. We thrive in that. Give us a book to read a Sunday school class to go to, give us a thrift shop to volunteer at, a panel discussion on homelessness to attend, and we will knock this discipleship thing out of the park every time. We are experts in Jesus' tasks and to-dos. But here in the Transfiguration, the pattern gets changed on us. The lessons on salt and light, on how to pray, how to love our enemies, and commands to show mercy, be meek, make peace, all fall oddly silent. As Jesus transforms right before our eyes. And the only words Christ can muster up for us are, get up, do not fear, be quiet. To do's that are a whole lot less tangible, a lot less rewarding than book studies, classes, volunteering, and discussion. Which is probably why we struggle with these nine verses. That like Peter, we can't help but raise a hand and interrupt and suggest that 
something more tangible, something more rewarding, something more permanent could be done here. And we end up running around in circles, struggling to make meaning from every word, parsing every verb, rereading dead theologians of old in the hopes of finding something more. But what if? What if in pursuit of that, we have missed that, like the fan who misses out on the performance, like Peter who misses out on the universe unfolding before his eyes, what if in our need to do something we have missed the beauty that is found here? As Beyonce says, y'all got to put the phone down for a second and actually enjoy this moment. Because in just a few days, the pattern will get changed on us again. Jesus and his disciples will come down from the mountain. And we will all begin that slow and solemn walk to Jerusalem. The lid between this world and the next will be replaced. Moses and Elijah will disappear. Choirs of angels are going to go silent, and the cosmos will fold back in on itself. We will soon be left with a heavy smudge of ash on our foreheads with the words, You are dust, and to dust you shall return, ringing in our ears, and the shadowy image of a cross on the horizon. Ringing in our ears, and the shadowy image of a cross on the horizon. Quiet.